It was a few years ago that I was at the barber shop, and I can't remember some uh, great crisis or event had occurred in the world as there happened to occur now on a regular, it seems hourly, if not minutely basis. And the girl that was cutting my hair, she had cut my hair a few times before, and she knew that I was a pastor. And so she's cutting my hair, and she says, can I ask you kind of a different question? And I'm thinking, okay, um, you're holding scissors right up against my head. You're kind of in charge right now. So you call the shots. She says to me, you're a pastor, right? And I said, yeah. And she says, is the world about to end? And I said, oh, that's a, that's a big question. And I tried my best to explain to her the many reasons why, which I don't know. And by which, frankly, I think many who would claim to know are probably mistaken. And yet, I understood the heart from which she asked the question, and I tried to explain to her the hope that, as a Christian, I have, that helps us to start to be able to understand and to place ourselves in the grand scope of all that is happening in the world and all that we see coming, happening in in the world to come, amidst everything that seems so topsy-turvy and upside down. And this is where Isaiah, as it concludes, helps us. One way you could consider looking at Isaiah 66 is it helps us to understand where we need to be going. And when I say that, I mean like we individually as well as we as a church, where we need to be going and where all of this is going. In fact, what I want to posit for you, what I want to hold up for you from Isaiah 66 is the following. In regards to this idea of where we need to be going and where everything else is going, if we will be humble and contrite in spirit and tremble before the Word of God, we will see God's everlasting goodness to us and His glory in the world as He establishes His eternal kingdom. Let me say that again. If we will be humble and contrite in spirit, and tremble before the Word of God, we will see God's everlasting goodness to us and His glory in the world as He establishes His eternal kingdom. We're going to see this through making our way kind of slaloming back and forth in Isaiah 66. God bounces from His people who know Him, trust Him, worship Him, and those who only think they do. And yet He says judgment is coming upon them. We're going to see this as He looks, as we see the, the person God looks favorably upon. First, something that appears to be quite noble. They want to build a temple or a structure for God to dwell in on earth in the midst of His people. In some respects, this is certainly admirable. This had even been done in centuries past in Israel, but look how God speaks in response to this in verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. God essentially says here, hey, I have created everything. The wood that you would build a house for me with, I created it. The mines by which you would 
craft blueprints and craft engineering designs by which you could build this elaborate structure to my name. I gave you those minds. All these things I have created, I'm not impressed or moved towards favor or mercy or love towards you because you can build a beautiful structure and slap my name on it. But God shows us in verse, six, in verse 2, He helps us to understand what He's getting at. Who is the one that God looks favorably upon? He says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see this line, but this is the one to whom I will look. That's an important line for us to consider. For you to say, God, what do I need to do to get your attention? What do I need to do to know that you are looking favorably upon me? Note verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. This this, uh, focuses the idea of favor, of grace, of mercy, of love. And it illustrates to us that there are those whom God looks favorably upon. And there are those whom He does not look favorably upon. He is concerned with the heart of His people, and that's the one to whom He looks. The humble are those who do not saunter or swagger into the presence of God. They do not expect Him to do their bidding. Their prayer life is not like a higher-up telling a little underling what kind of coffee they want them to get or to make sure they go pick up the laundry before before the dry cleaners closes. No, the humble recognize that they do not tell God what to do. They do not call the shots before God. They recognize that they are nothing apart from God and their their life is intended to orbit around the never-ending, all-consuming glory of God. God does not orbit around the all-consuming, self-centered pridefulness of man. Did any of you see those telescope shots from that James Webb telescope into outer space this week that were released by NASA? For about 25 seconds... Much of the polarization and strife and bitterness in this country was temporarily silenced as everyone does not exist that He might do our bidding. But He who created that, the stars orbiting, comets shooting across the the sky, nebula and, and other things that I don't even know what they are, testifying of the glory of God. And He says, this is the one to whom I have. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. That word contrite conveys a sense of injury or inability. When we think of contrite, we think of really broken emotionally. But it is the person who knows that he or she is unable to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's the person who knows they cannot walk forward on their own. They desperately know of their absolute need to be carried. God does not exist to adorn the walls of our lives, to be an addition to the overall tapestry of our life, to be a, 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 um, a, 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 a I'm trying, I'm losing my train of thought. He doesn't exist to be designer artwork in the room of our life. He exists as the oxygen by which we breathe. He is not an optional add-on. He is the very lifeblood before us. And the one who trembles before God's Word is the one who is seriously sensitive to obey the Bible. 
The Bible is not suggestions like the rules of a board game that you leave in a box and only pull out whenever you face a particularly uh, pressing conundrum and you're trying to solve it. No, the Bible is the book of life that our faint, feeble, shaking hands hold on to as the bombs of life explode all around us, as the wind races through your hair as you walk through the tightrope of life with peril and disaster seeming, lurk, seeming to lurk everywhere. This is the one to whom I will look. He or she who trembles at the Word of God. So let me ask you, is the Bible more like the rules to the board game that you keep in there and you only get out whenever there's a disagreement over how to play? Or is it the means by which you hold on for dear life? As you recognize you have been set apart for the glory of God in this world and you need all the help you can get in living for that and in humbling your heart under Him. So right at the outset of Isaiah 66, the conclusion of the book, Isaiah presents two pathways before us. The one who would build a fancy building for God. The one who would do some great work for God and say, look God, look at all that I've done for you. Aren't you impressed? Aren't you happy to live here? And the person who is humble and contrite in spirit, trembling before the God, the Word of God. With the heart of a beggar crying out, God, I need you, I cannot make it, do whatever you must in my life, because apart from you I cannot walk, I cannot speak, I cannot breathe. Two paths. The one God looks favorably upon and the one He looks upon in judgment. And so, this is laid out for us in verses 1 and 2 and then verses 3 to 6. God introduces the first time of, of a few times in this chapter He's going to warn those who would try to build a great structure to His name that judgment is coming. If you make a cursory glance at verse 3, you see they make offerings and sacrifices to Him. But He's in their abominations. God has said that these offerings, these sacrifices, these efforts to serve Him are horrific because though their hands make offerings, their hearts rebel against Him. And thus begins the warning that we all must hear. Jesus, in speaking, lest we think Isaiah is this Old Testament prophet who was, who was really bent out of shape, who was really worked up, let us consider the words of Jesus who, speaking to uh, religious leaders of His day and the religiously vibrant, those who appeared religiously fervent, He called them whitewashed tombs. What He meant by that is you look beautiful on the outside, but you are dead on the inside. Spiritually dead, bankrupt, lifeless. God warns us that we must hear this. He warns those who will not hear it of judgment that He would bring upon them. In verse 4, I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. And listen to this, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my, light, in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. What do you do when God calls? What do you do when God confronts you from His Word? When God corrects something in you by His Spirit at work in you, bringing His Word to life? Do you receive it as suggestion? Or do you receive it as something that you tremble before and you say, above all else, my life must be oriented in obedience to this? If it is received just as suggestion, something that perhaps gets dismissed, then perhaps you are the one that He is speaking of who He calls and no one answers. He speaks and no one listens. 
And let me, read, let me urge you this. It reads, Isaiah 66 reads as if judgment has been made. If you are hearing this and you are bored to the Bible, disinterested in God, feel that you'll swi- flip the switch when you get a little older, when you've lived a little more of life, do not assume that the die will not have already been cast. If you're hearing this and your heart is not in line with what you see in verse 2, understand this, there is nothing more pressing you can give these moments to the rest of this day, the rest of this week, Perhaps you need to plant yourself in Isaiah 66 and say, God, I'm worried this could be me. I'm opening your word. Help me start to to tremble before this chapter. Help me to start here. And send your Holy Spirit to do this work in my heart today. This work as I do business with you in your word. And take this totally seriously. And yet, if I may offer one word of comfort to you, if that's the boat you're in, if that is your heart, if you're on this first step, You're trembling before God's Word. Don't be scared by it. Lean into it. Push deeper into it. And you will find that as you tremble before His Word and you see His Son who beckons you to faith, if you will tremble before His Word, you will not have to tremble before His wrath. And here's what we have to understand. There are not different classes of Christians. There are not the average ones who they go about their business, they attend church when convenient, they try to be a good neighbor, just trying to make it through life as painless and of a manner as possible. And then there are kind of the elevated Christians, you know. There are those who they lead Bible studies. They're, they're the ones who are willing to pray out loud at events. And you can reach out to them if you're in a bind, if you're in a pickle. But then there are the super Christians, pastors, missionaries, other Christians who you spend your time around and you think, wow, this is really serious for him or for her. Christianity is not something where there's different tiers or different membership levels that you join by. God lays it out here. There are those who his judgment rests upon them or those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at his word. It is one or the other. There's not multiple different ways in which you can buy into this. There's varying levels of commitment. And in verses 5 and 6, we see that there were some who were mocking these humble and contrite ones who trembled at the word. You can picture them saying, okay, you guys are taking this a little too seriously. Your joy in the Lord is kind of uncomfortable for the rest of us. You ever been around somebody like that? I'll be honest, I have. Man, they take that Christianity thing seriously. Or they say something in a conversation after church or in a small group Bible study or something, and it just kind of pierces, and you're like... Yeah, that's asking a little too much for me. Now, obviously, we want to filter all these things through God's Word. Passion and zeal, apart from God's Word, is not what we are looking for. But we are looking to be a people who tremble before His Word. God says those who are not taking His Word seriously, it's just a charade. It's, it's His judgment is coming upon them. He will render His recompense upon them. Two camps, two groups, two different kinds of people. We've seen the person that God looks favorably upon, and now let us see in verses 7 to 14 the promise of God's everlasting judgment, of God's everlasting goodness. Perhaps the overarching message or emphasis of Isaiah is to call God's people to holiness that trusts in God, that desires to glorify Him in life, to desires that sees He is bringing about a spectacular kingdom that will be the eternal nourishment and blessing of His people. Think of it along these lines. Where do I need to be going and where is all of this going? 
Where do I need to be going? Holiness, humility, trembling before His Word. Where is all this going? For those who that is the case with them, spectacular, glorious, eternal, majestic goodness of God enjoyed by His people for all of eternity. And we're going to see some incredible imagery here. Look at what God says lies in stores as He brings more and more and more people to Himself as He builds His kingdom. He reveals how it is through His people, through His church, that He will bring a spectacular number of people to new birth and faith in Jesus Christ. But as we think about that, as we think about the church, evangelism, outreach, sharing the message, the hope of the gospel with those around us, as we think about that, if we're honest, the work of ministry, the outreach, the evangelism of the church, it can seem slow. It can seem kind of like it trudges along. Like you're going forward in first gear, and for some reason it won't shift to second gear, to third gear, to fourth gear. And it is. But what God gives us here is imagery that He helps us to see into the future. An image of new nations, lands brought forth by Him, putting His hand upon His church and using her wonderfully for the sake of drawing non-believers to faith through His church. And so you read verses 7 and 8. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. This is wonderful imagery here God is giving His people that one day he will, they will look up and they will see a, a, a new nation, a new land birth of Redeemer, redeemed, worshiping people of God. This is the church. This is the eternal kingdom of Christ that we look forward to. And yet as we live the Christian life on the south shore of greater Boston in 2022, we recognize that it's a life of slowness, of plodding. The faith we hold is one that is held in disregard, disinterest, and even disgust by some around us. Our responsibility is to trudge along humble and contrite in spirit and trembling at God's word. We don't know who the Lord would have to come to faith. We don't know how many. We don't even know whether we will be alive to see it. But we pray and we labor joyfully with our emotions and our feelings, not tied to results that we are seeing, but anchored to the promise that God will build His church. Do you see that? Let me say that again. We plod along, trudge forward with our our hopes, our emotions, our joy, not tied to the results we are seeing before our eyes, but tied to the promise of God that we see in verses 7 and 8 and throughout all of Isaiah 66. Much of the Bible is God telling His people, don't trust what your eyes are lying to you about right in front of you, but hear my voice and know. And so may the labor pains of faithful evangelism, the awkward conversations, the offense of the cross, conversations about the sinfulness of man, may they not lead us to believe that nothing will come, but may they show us that they are labor pains and they are signs that the birth is coming. Labor pains don't convince an expectant mother that a baby is not coming. They tell her that the baby is coming. And in the same way, our striving to be faithful and sharing the gospel with those around us. 
And the difficulty and the awkwardness of that and even the pain of it, these are labor pains for a kingdom still to come. And whether we see an overflow of people coming to faith in this life or in the life to come, what we know is that we see God telling His people in verses 10 and 11 to rejoice with Jerusalem, for you will on that day see the abundance of the city. You will meet Albanians, Koreans, Libyans, Kenyans, Iraqis, Canadians, all of them. You will say, you are here because of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And they'll say, yep, I once was lost, but now I am found. I once was blind, but now I see. All because of God's love displayed in Jesus Christ. Then you might look around and not just see faces from afar. But one day in that eternal Jerusalem, you will look around and you might recognize faces that you, you remember from the grocery store, from the library, maybe even from the dinner table. And you'll say, hey, what, what are you doing here? And they'll say, it's all grace. It's all grace. I don't know apart from Jesus Christ. He opened my eyes to his goodness and grace and brought me to himself. And I heard, through, I heard it, this message through this one person sharing the gospel from someone at your church. Yeah, you remember that small little church on Country Way? Yeah, that's the one. And then you'll look around you'll see another face. You'll see someone else you recognize. Hey, I, I, think, I think her kids were in school with mine. Boy, I didn't paint her. I didn't have her pegged as a Christian or as a religious person. You'll say, hey, what, what are you doing here? And they'll say, you know, my life felt like, I, I, simultaneously, I felt like I had everything I ever needed in life. And yet, I also felt like something was not quite right with my life. I felt like I had this itch that I could not scratch no matter how hard I tried. And then I heard the message of the gospel, and here I am. I can't really explain more than that, but it's good to see you. Brothers and sisters, that church, that one with the beautiful exterior, yet kind of smaller in number, if we're honest, a rather unimpressive group overall, with a rather unimpressive pastor who has his warts, you know, I am confident that we are going to look around that eternal Jerusalem one day, and we are going to see the fruit of our labors in ways that we will not know until we get there. And that is what God tells His people, Judah, in Isaiah 66. Listen to verses 12 through 14. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall carry, be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. After you are done looking around and seeing faces you never expected to see in that eternal Jerusalem, faces from all nations that have flowed like a river into the city of God our King, to the worship of His name, after you've looked around at those faces, maybe for a few thousand years, always with every new face looking in wonder and awe and gladness, you will realize that you have a feeling of peace and safety 
of security, of mercy, of ease, of contentment, of satisfaction, a feeling that you only ever knew in brief samples in this life. You'll see that it is already strong and it only grows stronger. And that is because the peace of the Lord is continually, never-endingly washing over you. Verses 12 to 14 are so beautiful, I'm going to read them again. And don't worry, I'm not taking extra longer in my sermon. I have it in my notes to read them again. For thus says the Lord, just listen to this and ask yourself if you yearn for this day. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And then listen to verse 14. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass. This is the future for the church, dear saints. This is what God is going to do through His church. And this is His promise to you. But verse 14 ends with a blessing and a curse. A blessing for those who belong to the Lord and the hand of the Lord shall be known to His servants. But a curse or a warning to those who do not. And He shall show His indignation against His enemies. And yet now we come upon a second warning of judgment for those who are not humble and contrite before Him. Those who cannot look forward to that eternal Jerusalem. Verses 15 and 16, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger and fury and His rebuke with flame and fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by His sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Fire represents the unapproachable holiness of God. And chariots were powerful weapons of war in Isaiah's day. They exemplified destructive militaristic power. This is an image of God's holy judgment upon those who would transgress against Him. This is the theme of Isaiah, a call to true faith. The honesty of a faith entirely oriented around God. And in this, God confronts those who are not oriented around Him. Those who are false worshipers. He began the book way back in Isaiah 1, verses 10 to 15, where He warns those who think that they worship Him, and yet they do not. And here He presents an eternal blessed home for His people where His presence will be with them, but not with those who rebel against Him. Verse 17, those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abominations and mice shall come to an end together, declares the, declares the Lord. This is interesting. Eating pig's flesh, mice. Hmm, what's going on here? Here we have yet again a warning against some form of religious practice or habit might be born of good motivations, but of improper placement. 
Most likely what was happening here is this reference to gardens as there was fertility cults in Isaiah's day that would lead people towards basically embracing some kind of self-helpism, some type of reliance upon this deity that was looking out for their good and would promise to make their wildest dreams come true. What Isaiah says is, do not buy the lie. For they call you to offerings, but they lead you to death. They call you to obedience, promising great reward, but delivering great curse. And we face the same temptations in our world, in our day. We face temptations that whether they are in some form of Christianese language or whether they are outside of it, that promise us a life of peace and of prosperity and yet deliver a lie. What God shows us here is that religious or spiritual action not grounded in the Gospel does not win points for effort. You see, what He shows us is that The great sacrifice, the perfect only sacrifice whereby His people can hope is in the one that He has provided. Think of it like this. As I have aged, I've made somewhat of an effort to try to eat healthier. Haven't done the best on that. Need to continue to work on it. One lesson I'm learning through my wife's laughter at me sometimes whenever she points out to me something that is not healthy that I always thought was healthy, is how much food that I thought was healthy that is not. I would eat it, it taste good, didn't seem to have any negative side effects, and it filled me up. How often do we view, perhaps, the things in our lives that are actually false worship that fill us up, that make us feel good, that seem to satisfy an itch or a longing until a day to come. And yet they're filling us up with that which will eventually kill us. It's possible even that that can happen with us in this room. It's possible we can sing songs, it's possible we can gather together, even sit under the preaching of God's Word, yet if we are not humble and contrite in spirit and trembling before His Word, trembling at His Word, then we are missing the boat. It's possible that we can sing of or we can talk about or we can consider a Jesus Christ who had great ethical teachings, Jesus Christ who confounds our minds, who perplexes the world, who provides uh, ways in which we we, we see or understand this man who who is unlike any other that we've ever heard before. And yet, if we will not come to Him at His cross and admit and acknowledge and confess that it was our sins that deserved the cross, yet it was His body that endured the cross... It was our soul that deserves damnation, and yet it is his soul, it was his body that, inserved, that, that received the wrath of God, then we can be in this room, we can be talking the right game, and yet we can be sorely mistaken. As I've heard it said before, church is a terrible hobby. If you'd like a better hobby, go buy a boat, take up fishing, golf, you name it. My concern is for those who view church as like a social club, a civic organization, a place where you generally like being around other people who you know there. And yet perhaps some of them, many of them, are broken before the cross and before the crucified Christ and are aware of their great need for Him. 
And though you sing the same songs in worship or hum the same tunes in worship, they sing it from a humble and contrite heart. And you sing it from nothing more than a curious or fascinated heart. May God give mercy. May I urge you to come to this Christ. Do not sanctify and purify yourselves in the garden and eat the, eat the foods that you think are satisfying your heart, that you think are nourishing your soul in this life, only to be found to be unhealthy and deadly to you. God's message is that judgment is coming. And lastly, God's plan is for His glory to be made known in verses 18 to 24. Going on in verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and they shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, and Lude, and draw the bow, to Tubal, and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. These places here, Tarshish, Pool, Ludge, Tubal, Javan, we don't really know where they are. A couple of them are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. We think they're kind of mythical places to describe to the ends of the earth. And God says that His plan as, as we work back from this eternal Jerusalem where the peace of God flows like a river, where the people of God rejoice in His presence, He will first send His people out to make His glory known among the nations. They shall come three times in verses 18, 19, 20. It says, they will see my glory. They will see my glory. Look at the first part of verse 19. I will set a sign among them. And this sign by which God has set it, that his people come to him and see his glory, is his crucified and resurrected son himself. And this is why we, as the people of First Baptist Church of Situate, Massachusetts, on this day, we gather and sing of the crucified and risen and reigning Jesus Christ, just in the same way our brothers and sisters in Bangkok, Thailand, gather on this Lord's Day and sing of the crucified and risen and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sign, the seal set before us that we all might be as a people from all nations gathered around rejoicing in Him. And we see here that as His people are sent out to make Him known to the coastlands far away, to those who have not heard His fame, to those who have not seen His glory, we see at the end of verse 19, they will declare His glory among the nations. And they will bring others from all nations to come and to worship this Christ. This is metaphorical. They'll bring Him on horses. They'll bring Him on chariots. They'll bring Him in litters, mules, dromedaries. That's a camel. I looked that up this week. To my holy mountain, to Jerusalem, says the Lord. So this is why we are serious about sending our brothers and sisters out to the nations to make the glory of Christ known. That's why we're sending Becca to Egypt in just a couple of months. We're going to rejoice with her and we're going to commission her and we're going to send her out to make Christ known to those who do not know Him. And he even says in verse 21, there will be no second class citizens in Jerusalem. Some of these who come from the far nations will be priests. They'll be Levites, says the Lord. They'll, be, they'll, they'll, they'll help lead my people. Then verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship me, declares the Lord. Do you want to know where all this is going? Right here. People from all nations rejoicing in and celebrating and treasuring the glory of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Peace like a river washing over them. Day by day by day, the river never dries up. There are no droughts of the everlasting love of God 
in the eternal city that we will inhabit. And yet, he closes with one last warning that we would be foolish to neglect. Verse 24, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Pause right here. It is as if in the new Jerusalem, there's a cemetery beside it of those who rebelled against God, who were in this first camp, who wanted to build a temple to his name, who wanted to do their sacrifices, their offerings, who wanted all the pleasures of this life without the, the pain of obedience, without the pain of discipleship and following Christ. And they will be separated from him. And our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 9, in warning his hearers of the absolute seriousness of sin and the necessity of forsaking that sin, it was this verse, Isaiah 66 24, that he quoted, warning his listeners of the unquenchable fire because it would be better to cut one's hand off or tear one's eye out that causes them to sin than to be, quote, thrown into hell where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. It is as if the great warning must be, that bell must be rung one more time. And we hear this and we say, wow, that is severe. Isn't something like hell out of step with our day and age? It might be out of step with our day and age, but we see it is not out of step with God's righteous judgment on those who blaspheme His name and those who transgress against His word and those who do not come to Him through Christ. We might even think things like, man, this makes God sound severe. And there's all sorts of conversations we have about that where we recognize that God is perfectly just and holy and righteous. But before we chalk this up as making God sound severe, we must understand this for the warning that it is. And here's the warning that it is. It's not a warning given to all those who partake in what we would deem to be horrific, despicable, gross, ugly sin. That are the kind of people that we would picture, oh, that person would never darken the door of a church. This is a warning to those who wanted to build great buildings, who wanted to do great works in the name of God. And yet he said, you don't know me. You, 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 you lie in your worship. You deny me in your praise. And if the glory of the Jerusalem that is to come is not enough to beckon you to come to me, let me give you one more warning. Come to me before it is too late. And that is where we conclude with Isaiah. A warning and exhortation to us. Do you hope in? Do you rest in? Does your heart cling to the crucified Christ for your sin? Resurrected that you may be brought to new life in Him. Or does it not? That girl that was cutting my hair asked me how the world was going to end. And I told her, ultimately, I don't really know. And I think I'm safe in saying that because Jesus Himself in the Gospel said, I don't know. Only the Father knows. 
but I don't know is not a fitting answer for what he has laid before us in his word that we must know. And that being the need for him through Christ. So what does it call us to? What does it say about all and where this is going? Let me just set before you, if we will be humble and contrite in spirit and tremble before the word of God, we will be these things. We will see God's everlasting goodness to us and his glory in the world as he establishes his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, heaven is your throne, the earth is your footstool. There is nothing that we can give to you in our All that we can do is regularly, daily, hourly, moment by moment, fall before your throne. Not falling as ones who don't know whether you will be there, but falling as ones who know you will lift us up. You will be with us. You are only with us for those who have emptied themselves of any self-reliance and have looked upon Christ in faith and have repented of their sins and come to Him. So Lord, make that the case for us. Cause us to be a church, a people that plod along, making Christ known, trusting in Your Word, sitting under the faithful preaching of Your Word, trembling at it, humble and contrite in spirit, knowing that we need our risen Lord to carry us day by day and knowing that He will be there. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.